You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Raiders Pictures Edition. We are talking about the third and final Indiana Jones film. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the last crusade. The final adventure of Indiana Jones. He rides into the sunset at the end. It's not true. Marcus gets lost outside of his own museum. So they have to go catch his horse. Yeah. That's how it ends. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for playing along. This is the end (laughs) of the Indiana Jones films. (laughs) A perfect button to put on the series. That's true. That's true. And now there's that other one. We'll talk about it in its place. It's really bad. I rewatched it and I was, I don't know how much there's going to be. I don't want to go watch it again. Well, you have to because the people paid for it. I don't know how much there's going to be to say about it though. Like it's just kind of lame. It's not even really interestingly bad. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll be interesting. We'll figure out a way to be interesting on it. I'm sure there's things to talk about. What's weird is that Harrison Ford was already starting to get a little bit slower here. Like around this time, Harrison Ford wasn't running as fast or jumping as far as he was in the early 80s or the 70s. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and then by the time Crystal Skull came out, he was an old man. He was an old man, and it's not really quite as plausible to see old men surviving nuclear bombs. <laughs> it's not as pl- obviously <laughs> any young man can get in a fridge. Oh, let's not start this thing out with negative energy. We're talking about one of my favorite movies from my childhood. Absolutely, a yeah, movie that I just too. thought was great. The first Indiana Jones movie that I ever saw, if I'm not mistaken. I think Burger King or McDonald's was having a. I think it was mcdonald's was having a promotional where you could get like i guess it's a happy meal i don't know what it was exactly but you could buy the vhs's or get the vhs's of the back to the futures and the indiana joneses i don't know look it up somebody out there or tell me that you remember this too i remember like the display case where they would have the little toys at mcdonald's had the indiana jones movies in it anyway this would have been in the early 90s and we got our vhs collection that way built it up watched those first time i ever saw the back back to the futures first time that i saw the indiana joneses and we started for what i think just because we got the vhs first for whatever reason we started backwards we saw last crusade first so this was my first experience of indiana jones and it was such an indelible experience that i I didn't see temple of doom for years later because my parents were smart i did see Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the day after, the week after, and Raiders of the Lost Ark really didn't seem half as fun or exciting as Last Crusade, because <laughs> Last Crusade, like for a for a kid, for a for a nine year old, yeah, Last Crusade. I guess now that I'm an adult, I know it has like boring adult stuff, but all that stuff went over my head. We probably fast forwarded the Venice Ah Venice scene. It just seemed like a really fun movie, the most fun. Indiana Jones movie. It is the most fun Indiana Jones movie. What was your experience? What baggage do you bring, Jake, to Indiana Jones? It was my Jones? favorite as a kid, too. Yeah. Uh, it just, why wouldn't it? It just is any kid's favorite. Mm-hmm. Father son stuff and Sean Connery being cute and funny and old, but still having some mojo and Indiana Jones being fun and doing fun stuff. The scary's not as scary as the other movies, but scary enough for but a still, kid. But yeah. still scary. The action's also not as action-y, but... Yeah, as an adult, we'll talk about how this hit us as an adult, because I think, especially coming off the intensity of In Temple of Doom, this is a step down in some ways. But as a kid, yeah. Well, I feel like this was maybe the first place that I became aware of certain 
even just joke formulas. Like it was the first, like you've talked on the Bookening, our literature podcast before about how you read Goosebumps when you were a kid. So some of those great horror tropes. All the horror tropes came to me as interpreted by R.L. Stein for his idea of what third graders would like. And then so instead of getting it from like a Twilight Zone, from someplace good, he was really a ghost, things like that you got from yeah. Goosebumps the first time instead of, yep. and, and so I, I feel like in a, in a better but similar way, so many things that I've, that have happened a million times in cinema and that I've seen a million times, I got here first. The ironic reversal of fortune, you know, they don't get much closer than that. And then the bomb drops and it turns out they do get much closer than that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was hilarious as a kid. Or, you know, Marcus speaks 4,000 languages. He's the greatest. Da, 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 and then we're going to hard cut to Marcus <laughs> confused in and out of his depth. The ar- ironic hard cut to the opposite thing that the person just <laughs> said happening. Yep. Our marriage is going great. Hard cut to wife throwing you out of the house. That, that. I don't think I'd seen that joke before. So there's all kinds of things like that. I, I don't think I could even catalog them for us, but things that seem pretty simple and benign mm-hmm. watching now, but they just seemed like magical and hilarious as a kid. So this is actually the only, this is one of two Indiana Jones movies that has come out, could have come out during my lifetime. Maybe one of three Indiana Jones movies that huh. have come out during your lifetime because Temple of Doom was 84, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was born. So I don't know whether you were a little baby or whether you were... February of 84 is when I was born. There you so. go. So you were born. I was born. You were born. Mm-hmm. You were pulled out of your mother's womb, much like a heart being ripped out of someone's chest. Indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> was from my mother's womb untimely born. Unti- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Me and... What's his face? No, that's not actually true. I was just making a Shakespeare reference yeah. in case you guys don't listen to the book any. Yeah, no, Jake Jake was... Probably they don't. They just listen to movies. From his... Richard III. He's not Richard III. But uh, Jake was from his mother's womb, timely born. I was, yeah. Um, and that was actually a Macbeth quote. The, oh. Oh. Remember, Macbeth can't be killed by somebody who's born of woman. Right. I'm a dunce. What can I say, folks? There's a lot of Shakespeare characters that were born at the wrong time (laughs) (laughs) or had their stars misaligned or, uh, well, Jake, uh, we're going to go through this movie as we do, obviously. Is there anything else in terms of uh, baggage or expectations or anything that you brought to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? No, I don't think so. I just, I really uh, have a lot of affection for this movie. Do you still have the same, I I guess we should just say what we actually think about this movie. Do you feel like it's held up over the years? It's not held up as well, but I, I still think it's still fun to go back to it. You know, as a kid, it was candy. It was like, if we're going to watch Indiana Jones, you want to watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah. Like, that's the one you want to watch, and you can sit down and watch it over and over and over again. I can't sit and watch this over and over again. But, you know, it's been some years since I've seen it. I, here's what I'll say. The father and son stuff is there, and the writing is there. And the action is not, and the retread of Raiders is tired so and, and lazy. And so it was like they're, they're sort of structurally lazy, but they put good elbow grease into lots of different bits yeah. and of writing. And then the action scenes are just, because they're Raiders retreads, they're just not fun, and they're not as exciting. But the father-son stuff is great. I really like Sean Connery. It's his best role mm-hmm. that he's ever played, in my opinion. Sean Connery and Harrison Ford were great together. They did the same thing with Harrison Ford that they did with Short Round, mm-hmm. but just put him in a cynical, older. It was you know sweet. You know you had the you, Short Round in the background, sort of like imitating Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. like 
give Indy all these moments where he's like sort of looking at his dad and longing for his dad's approval or his dad's pride or just assuming that, you know, this or that. And then it's sweet. It's fun. It's got some good father-son tension and, and a, a drama. And, really nice payoff. though. And, a, and such a great payoff. The way that they're actually able to tie the father and son story to the relic and to the search, to the magical powers even. That's everything that we criticized about the ending of Temple of Doom. We said like... These the powers of this thing are really kind of incidental to what's happening with this bridge and with this bad guy and with yeah, the emotions they, they of the like, kids the getting away. The one thing we're not going to do is make that mistake ever again. Yeah, and that was smart. Yeah. Well, except for that they did make that mistake with again. Of, because We're not going to make that mistake again in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> in this movie, yeah. <laughs> we'll make it again some other time, but not... <laughs> Today is not that day. We will make this mistake every other time. <laughs> <laughs> right, which bodes well for five. Yeah, bodes well for five, exactly. Yeah, it's weird to be watching an Indiana Jones movie where the least interesting part is the action scenes. Yeah. But that is how this movie felt. I, I will say, I mean, we're going to go through the movie here in a second. But, but the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. That's what a good... I mean, the tank chase is good. It's also... I have seen this movie. I did watch it so much as a kid. Like, some of the, like the tank scene, for example, maybe it's great, but it just doesn't feel that great because I know yeah. every, every beat. beat of it. Um, oh, here's where we're going to get the... Ro- oh, he's... You know, stuck on his thing. Oh, he's going to get a rock. Oh. But it does feel like a tank is kind of a slow lumbering vehicle. And there's just some weird things in the action. Even like the River Phoenix scene at the beginning, I really love. But there's like a part where a guy, that guy like obviously has a rubber snake. (laughs) And he's like, ah, and he's waving the rubber snake around. There's just little things like that where it's like, are they trying, you know, is Spielberg into doing this kind of stuff as much as he was even... 10 years ago it feels like they did the rhinoceros horn thing that was fun yeah like spielberg this is spielberg still at the top of his game he still cares this isn't ready player one you know he's not just telling his technicians to phone it in for him or he's not just phoning it in and letting his technicians do it for him he's still having fun coming up with ideas you know we're gonna be on a circus train what are the what's what's every conceivable variation of how many gags can we build into this he's obviously Mm -hmm. still having fun conceiving of these sequences but then the execution seems a little bit more lackluster or he's just not the same hungry young director that he was even as far back as Raiders of the Lost Ark, who just seems to really be getting a kick out of doing this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. feels like he needed the father and son stuff to motivate him. him. interested. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where the time and energy and elbow grease, that's where it went. Yeah. There's also a weird transitionary movie if you think about spielberg's career let me see if this olivier was supposed to be the grail knight oh that would have been great wouldn't that have been cool that would have been awesome i just looked down and saw that that would have been good wouldn't that have been fun although you can't top that guy that grail knight he was awesome i I looked him up that he hasn't really done anything else that's famous in film but his delivery of you choose you chose poorly is i would contend one of the top 10 deliveries of a line yeah, it's great. And I mean, how many times do you quote that in a year, listener? Like, I feel like I probably quote that line once a week. Oh, that uh, the soft chocolate Twix that you got isn't as good as the nerds that you were thinking about getting. You chose, you know, yeah, I say that line to people. Yeah, and there's all times the time. that there's a time you say it out loud, and then there are all the times that you say it in your head too. too yeah, he chose poorly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it did really like, oh, Joe Biden isn't able to read his teleprompter or something like <laughs> that. These, that line comes into play yeah. all the time. If you think about, I was saying, if you think about Spielberg's career, I think this will work. Let me think about this for a second. Is this the transitionary movie? 
where Spielberg goes from telling stories about guys with daddy issues to telling stories about dads. Because if you think about Hook, Jurassic Park, like by by Hook and Jurassic Park, you know, by it's the early dads. '90s, it's the stories about dads. And instead of a son being uneasy with his father, it's a father being uneasy with his. You know, it's Alan Grant has to learn to love the kids in Jurassic Park and protect them. Uh, Sean Connery has to learn how to have some emotional intelligence and actually be there for his son. But I'm thinking I haven't. I didn't like do this beforehand, so I don't know whether it tracks perfectly. But I'm thinking this is actually a good. The movies that come before this, well, let's just think about this for a second, are, are going to be about young men protagonists, basically. Maybe young family men like Dreyfus and um, Close Encounters. Pulling up the filmography. Yeah, order let's, just, here. let's just think about this. All right. Pulling it up. Okay. So, as a director and writer, 64, you have Firelight, an amateur film. Then you've got Duel, Ace Eli, and Roger of the Skies. TV movies all. Sugarland Express. All right, that's about young hippies. So that's like a young young people. And then you get Jaws. Jaws is, I'd say, basically about young single men. Maybe some of them have families, but the families don't matter. Then you get Close Encounters. Dreyfus is a young man with a family. He leaves that family behind to get on a spaceship because that family is annoying and holding him back. Yep. And he really deserves to be floating among the stars. Which... Spielberg has said is something he really regrets doing. Yeah, Spielberg says like he would never do that now because he loves his family. Then you have 1941. Uh, goofy comedy with John Belushi. And you have Raiders. Raiders, obviously Indiana Jones, the man, a young in his 30s man's man. And then in 1982, you have uh, E.T. and Poltergeist. All right, so those are both stories about either young families or kids. You know, those are from the point of view of a kid in an adult's world in both of those movies. Huh. Yeah, Raiders, E.T., and Poltergeist all within like 18 months. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, what a great run. 83, you get Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah, I forget what Spielberg's segment is, is in that. I think it's the lame one. It's one of the lame ones. Then you get Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. And then you get The Color Purple. And then you get, well, he gets an executive and story cre- story writer credit on The Goonies. Right. In 85. Okay, so we're still telling stories about young men or young women or kids. And he was the second unit director for that movie as well, apparently. Probably means he came in and did a day and they made a thing of it. Then Empire of the Sun. That's another movie about a young man, young Christian Bale. 89 is Always and Last Crusade. Nobody cares about Always, Last Crusade in my the point I'm making, this is a pivot movie where we are about both a young man and about from the father's perspective as well. Immediately following Last Crusade is Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List. All about middle-aged father figure type men. Then you have Jurassic Park Lost World. Also, Ian Malcolm is played, uh, even though he's played as a young Lothario in Jurassic Park, once he becomes the hero, he's played as a fretting father figure to his young adopted daughter. You have Amistad, and then Saving Private Ryan, and then AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds. And I actually just jumped us from like 98 to 2005. There you go. I think, I think my point. I think your point with a, with a couple With a couple minor exceptions and gradations basically stands. Last Crusade is the transition into Spielberg telling stories from the point of view of the father. Last Crusade actually isn't there. It's just the transition point. And then after that, 
the majority of his movies are going to be, I mean, Minority Report is about a father who's lost his son and broken up with his wife. You know, even uh, War of the Worlds, you know, his, his big Tom Cruise runs fast action tentpole movies will be about fathers. Fathers trying to protect their families or... And, and, and when he does things like Ready Player One, it's going to be clear that he has no affinity for the young man's story, could care less about it. The only character he's vaguely interested in is the grandfatherly Willow, Willy Wonka guy. Yeah, and then in the middle of, you know, so basically after Crystal Skull, which, you know, so you get War of the Worlds and Munich in 2005, then you get Crystal Skull in 2008, then you get Adventures of Tintin, War Horse, Lincoln Bridge of Spies, the BFG. So you get these sort of like, it's almost like, now I'm telling stories for the grandkids. Yeah, yeah, it really, he's, he's moved, like, yeah. And Ready Player One didn't really fit. But nice coming back with uh, West Side Story. That'll be interesting. Yeah, this will be the first time that he's just trying to channel youthful energy. I mean, he's he's directing and producing West Side Story himself, and it's in post already. So that'll be interesting. Um, I'll be interested to see a trailer for that. Well, there you go. It is interesting to note how transparent. I mean, this is one of the keys to Spielberg's success: is he brings his own fears and desires and stuff to these things. And so when he was a young man, he wrote, he made stories about, I mean, I know this sounds like the most obvious point in the world, but I don't think it's foregone conclusion that a storyteller always tells stories about where they're at in life. But one of the great populists of the 20th century, Steven Spielberg, seems to have basically done that. Let's not forget that this series that we're doing is a part of a broader scope of things called the superhero's journey, mm-hmm. right? And so we have Indiana Jones, who is basically our prototypical American anti-hero, the sort of bedrock foundational embodiment of everything that Americans think heroes should be, put together by the greatest populist action sequency director of all time. And so I think it's important for us to watch and see Indy's arc become an arc that is really just at the end of the day about father hunger Mm -hmm. and about fatherhood. Right. And even and we'll talk about this with Crystal Skull. The theme of fatherhood is one that it just isn't going anywhere. Nope. Right? Like it may we may not tell a good father son story, but we know that this hero story needs to be a father son story. Actually, Raiders is the only one that isn't. Mm-hmm. Right? But just the same, the the real emotion and sentiment that you get in Last Crusade is something that the superhero movies are going to come back to time and time again, and we're going to see that over and over and over again, where You've got the uh, outsider, the cynical outsider hero, anti-hero, who lives by his code or whatever, or has to find a purpose. But when it comes down to it, when we need to get sentimental, Mm -hmm. he's got to grow into a father figure one way or another. And in the process, he's got to deal with his daddy issues. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the story. That's part of the journey. That's part of the growing up. And Campbell knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like Spielberg invented that. But yeah, we're going to see those themes play out. We're going to see Robert Downey Jr. do his version of that. We're also going to see Batman do that. Mm-hmm. We're going to see Superman do that. We, we may just have to find an excuse to talk about Jurassic Park at some point because what a pivotal movie for all these things. I, I, the reason I'm thinking about Jurassic Park is because it's a movie that does not care about its characters at all. All it cares about is exploiting new technology to show the greatest dinosaurs that cinema has ever seen. And so it's like, if we're going to do that, 
what is the quickest way to get some emotion in there, you know, to just give the people something that they can connect to. And they chose, they choose to tell a very simple father story. I don't know that I want to have kids. I don't know that I can have kids. Oh no, now I've got to be a dad to these kids. And actually, I'd love to have kids. Kids are great. Kids are great. And these kids are actually kind of cool. Even though they're still kind of kids and annoying at times. Hey, kids are kind of cool after all. And they tell funny jokes like, do you think he saw us? And do you think he saw us Rex? I back-to-backed Last Crusade and Jurassic Park. It's a good way to do it. I I just seemed like the right thing to do. I We hadn't talked about this beforehand, but that's what I did. Well, I've, I've also been watching the, through the Jurassic Park movies for some reason. I think just because Amblin's been on my mind. Which, by the way, folks, we decided to do Poltergeist for our Halloween pick this year. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot we did. Which will be really fun to talk about because it's right in that. It's right in that place when Spielberg was knocking one thing out of the park after another, and he decided to do his version of a horror movie of a ghost. Y'all won't be surprised to know I've not seen it. So I think you might like it. It is certainly much more friendly than a lot of horror movies. I mean, it is a you'll recognize it as an Amblin Spielberg movie. It's not that much more intense than. In fact, it's kind of weak sauce as horror horror goes. goes. It's okay. It gives me a thrill in the pit of my stomach to think there's a something that could channel the those Amblin vibes that I've not explored. I, I think you're, I don't want to oversell it. It's not the perfect movie, but it's got a lot of that Amblin suburbia spirit. Uh, no pun intended. Love it. That's what I'm. That's the reason that I pitched it to you. That's why I'm excited to do it. The the horror stuff is just whatever. It's kind of like watching an Amblin movie that you've never watched before because I, I barely remember it, but I know I saw it when I was a kid. Anyway, what were we talking about? Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Or, no, no. Last Crusade. Last Crusade, yeah. Father, hunger, father relationships. Uh, we got from there to Jurassic Park and Amblin. Yep, we sure did. We sure did, yeah. We got all those places. I guess the only other big picture thought I have about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is it is interesting how you can retroactively set the template for a franchise. So what I mean by that is Raiders of the Lost Ark is a particular type of movie. Temple of Doom is a particular type of movie. If they had done a third movie like George Lucas wanted to do, where Indiana Jones was in a haunted castle, I think that was Lucas's pitch, then... We would not expect that these movies always have Indiana Jones globe trot trotting. In other words, when they made Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, they had to adhere to a certain formula. That formula is the Raiders of the Lost Ark formula. But that only got cemented when Last Crusade decided to do a retread. Right, exactly. And then suddenly that's the Indiana Jones formula. And now Temple of Doom is a break from formula. Yeah, exactly. It's it's one of the things that makes Temple of Doom really fun to go back to, actually, because it just doesn't feel like an Indiana Jones movie in some ways, actually. Yeah, well, at the very least, you can say, well, it's a prequel. Right. Which isn't, in fact, what it is. But And if you interpret it that way, you can say, you'd probably assign more intentionality right. to it being different than it deserves. Yeah, it, <laughs> I was going to say, you're assigning it more than it actually deserves. But yeah, it's just interesting how these things work. Well, we talked about it a lot with Empire Strikes Back. You remember we did our little sketch yeah, where... Yeah, well, we talked about it with... Uh, I mean, we we talk about this with every middle movie. Yeah. We talk about, the, talk about it with The Last Jedi. We talk about it with Empire Strikes Back. And we talked about it some with Temple of Doom already. Mm-hmm. Or with a sophomore album, right? Yeah. The artist tends to not really 
know or have perspective on what people liked mm -hmm. tends to go in a direction where he, you know, he thinks he knows what people liked. It's not what people liked. And so then he goes back and tries to recreate the very first thing that he did. Or sometimes he gets lucky and creates a masterpiece with that second thing. And mm -hmm. maybe it's not appreciated at first, but then everybody sees it as it's a really seminal great work of art that it is and that he's allowed to build on. Yeah. Either way, the it's almost like you don't set it in stone until the third thing. Like you can kind of do what you want for the sophomore and it can either be a, I don't know. I mean, we, although uh, you want to know the, the trilogy, we're going to get to talk about that blows that to bits that actually breaks that whole mold. Mm -hmm. It's Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. The first one was a dull origin story. The second one was awesome. And one of the great superhero movies of all time. And it allowed him the freedom to do whatever he wanted with the third one. And that third one. Yeah. I don't think he actually had, if I'm remembering the backstory, I think he lost. They they were idiots and said, you got to do Venom and you got to do this. And we think we know what the fans want. So I'm not sure we're actually seeing Sam Raimi's third Spider-Man the way he would have just done it on his own. Good. With, with that almost feels, yeah. I'm so good. glad he's coming back to Marvel. Oh what, my yeah, goodness. That's going to be great. What, what that almost feels like is I'm clearing my throat. I don't really know how to make a Spider-Man movie for the first one. And then the second one, I, I nailed it. it. Yeah. I hit it out of the park. Home run. And then the third one, insofar as it is Sam Raimi's fault. Well, I kind of said everything I had to say. Like, actually, I had one great Spider-Man movie mm -hmm. in me. But, you know, like, so much of what you think an Indiana Jones movie is actually comes because Temple of Doom, or no, because Last Crusade made the choice that these are the parts of the formula that we always have to have. Right as the Lost Ark laid down a particular template, Temple of Doom asserted that you didn't need that particular template, and then Last Crusade said, actually we do and so from now on anytime they make an indiana jones movie if they eventually recast if they you know look i don't think disney's gonna let this ip die even when harrison ford does whatever they do with it it's like we know that he's gonna get a mission we know that he's gonna globe trot we know that he's gonna find the relic at the end and it's gonna unleash supernatural havoc on the bad guys like these are the things that we know there's gonna be that middle of the second act giant action set piece. These are the things that have to happen mm -hmm. in an Indiana Jones movie. Nobody knew that those were the things that had to happen until the third movie came along. I don't know. I guess my only point is it's interesting how those things get set in stone. Well, and you know, the fact is they created the, the formula. Mm -hmm. They decided we're going to stick with the formula and then we're going to play within the formula. Yeah. And tell a different kind of story, a completely different kind of story within the formula for Last Crusade. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. And they paid lip service to all of those beats that they had to hit. Mm -hmm. and they, Nazis, I hate those guys. Yeah. The places where they had freedom to tell a different story within the framework, they told a fun story. It was mm -hmm. interesting. It was funny. Well, and it was I do enjoyable. think- It was well acted. It was well written. Would you dock this movie points for adhering to the formula or for being I, so formulaic? I, I don't dock any movie points uh, for adhering to a formula if it does a great job of being creative and successful within the formula. Yeah, I think there are a couple places where this movie, where the formula stuff feels formulaic simply because it's not that great. Donovan's not a great bad guy, for example. Yeah. Um, well, but, he's just a, I mean, Bellic was so good. Yeah, and he's no Bellic. Yep. Uh, Elsa is actually a good bad guy. Yeah. She's the, but, but the German heavy, whatever his name is, the guy that goes down with the tank, he's okay. He's nothing special. Yeah. And Donovan's pretty boring. And so that's where you feel like, oh, they're just doing the same formula. 
Yeah. But a lot of the things. They did actually have the nerve to put Adolf Hitler in the movie. Yeah, that was fine. And have Adolf Hitler sign the stupid Grail book, the Grail diary. Well, that's another way in which this movie sort of sets the template for what Indiana Jones is in a way that the other two haven't. Indiana Jones always felt, if you if you really think about who he was in those other two movies, he felt much more like an anti-hero. But Spielberg has become more of a family man. He's more family friendly. He doesn't really want to tell anti-hero stories by the time of Last Crusade. And so suddenly Indiana Jones is fighting Hitler. Yeah. No, is that literal in, Hitler? Yeah. Like <laughs> he's fighting the Nazis. He's a do-getter. And, and then when we watch Crystal Skull, it's like Indiana Jones was part of the, you know, his backstory in that movie is that he, he was in the service during World War II and all this stuff. Like Indiana Jones is an American hero. We kind of think of him as an American hero. That's really not inherent in the Indiana Jones character. No. But it sort of gets back grafted on around here. Indiana Jones just feels like more of a hero based on their conception of him in this movie. Well, I guess we should talk about it. So I do love the opening sequence of this movie. I, I think Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it as a kid and it's still fun to watch. And River Phoenix charisma and charm r.i.p i mean it's too bad it is too bad what was he a drug od or something like that i think it was an od yeah, yeah. that's really sad uh he was and a dead ringer for harrison ford like one of the best i mean they are two separate stars so you can't ever really suspend your disbelief but in terms of a young man actually looking like his plausibly. old counterpoint plausibly yeah. or phoenix is, comes about as close as it's pretty good it, and that is, I'd say, the closest to... We're going to tell the story. And, and if you think about it, just in terms of execution, I know that you said... To fake snake and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, if you just, like, back up and say, all right, guys, like, any of you think, like, and this is what we said about Solo. Like, Solo was... The smart thing to do with Solo was not to try to tell a Star Wars movie but to set indiana jones in the star wars universe mm -hmm. so that you could get everything that feels like harrison ford yep, yep. applied to alden ehrenreich and, and so you know what they did was what they do in the, just this opening sequence it's like all right guys what are the things that we're going to reveal about and we're going to reveal how he got the scar on his chin how he came to wield a, a bullwhip mm -hmm. how he got his fedora his look yeah. his signature look where it came from how who he stole it from and why he's terrified of snakes yeah and we're going to see the seed form of his heroism and his principle that belongs in a museum. And we're also going to see why he's such a broken man. Well, I, there's an idea in here in this beginning that I just really love it. It somehow, it just warms my heart. I just think it's so smart. The idea that Indiana Jones had this, I, this father who was everything that Indiana Jones would become in terms of smarts, in terms of perception, in terms of all this stuff. But the guy that he latched onto was some guy, <laughs> a guy that had a fedora, some tough guy. In a leather jacket. <laughs> in a leather jacket. The idea that there was just this random dude that came into Indiana Jones's life, had one, you know, half an hour encounter with him, and he's based his entire life on wanting to live up to that guy. But he's still his dad. But he still became his dad. <laughs> <laughs> And everything that he kind of needs to grow out of is that guy and everything that he needs to grow. It's just yeah, within the simple action filmmaking iconography, it's really smart and it's it's kind of deep, man. I mean, like that's It is super deep. That's what happens. Super deep, man. <laughs> no, no, it is what but but that's yeah, it is really great. So so you list all of that stuff out, right? Mm -hmm. 
and then you think, okay, our intro to the movie is we're going to answer all of these questions that nobody is asking. Yeah. Like, there are so many ways to do that poorly. Well, George Lucas did a million of them in the prequels. Um, Goodbye, my old friend Chewbacca. You know, there's like these like, oh, that's how Chewbacca and Yoda met. There's a question I never cared about. It's that kind of thing. Oh, Chewbacca knew Yoda the whole time. Oh, Anakin built C-3PO. I know Filoni managed to, well, actually even George Lucas managed to make that stuff kind of play, but that's a stupid idea (laughs) to to start with. Those kinds of connections can be super lame, and they usually are. I think what makes this sequence work in that way is, A, it is so much fun. B, well, it just plays as a great action sequence, and it's a cascading action sequence. Exactly right. So it's the J.K. Rowling trick Mm -hmm. of, I'm going to include a whole bunch of details that are going to become relevant later on but they're all going to seem relevant to the moment. Right. That's right? exactly. If like there's no reason that we should be interested inherently in Yoda meeting a Wookiee. Yeah. The only reason that that's interesting is because we know that that Wookiee becomes Chewbacca. But there's no it's not serving any purpose in this story. And yeah. so it seems lame and, and out so of place. You have to make it, if you're going to do that, you have to make it seem purposeful mm-hmm. to this story in a standalone sort of way. And that's what this action sequence, like he falls into a, a, a lion cage. Lion tamers have bull whips. It's inevitable that there's a bull whip laying around. He grabs it. He has no idea what he's doing. Like he's just a kid. We want to reinforce the idea that he's just a kid figuring things out. He tries to crack the whip. It smacks him in the face and cuts his chin. He gets Harrison Ford's scar. Yeah, like all that stuff feels in a inevitable and it would be just as fun if we'd never seen an indiana jones that's movie. right like it, it just wouldn't matter like right it's doing all the work of telling that particular story that it's telling about this kid it's just a good storytelling yeah. think question to ask yourself when you're writing a scene is this scene interesting because this scene's interesting or is this scene only interesting because of something over here and if the scene's only interesting because of something over here maybe sometimes that's inevitable in storytelling you got to have that stuff but you should always try and make it like this is serving a purpose now. here and now. Yep. This isn't just set up. That is the kind of thing that this script is awfully smart about. And it's super smart. About man, it. it's this skill that completely had deserted George Lucas. We are great George Lucas apologists, but he forgot how to do any of this cleverly by the time he got to the prequels. There's yep. a lot of stuff in those prequels where it's like the only reason that this is even interesting that we're, we even want to know these characters is because. Mm-hmm. something interesting will happen 30 years down the line with them okay so you go from chris columbus by the way recommended with the script chris columbus did a draft i know that um what is his name the guy that did the polish on it that wrote a lot of the dialogue which this movie has some fantastic dialogue is named jeffrey bohm and he's responsible for the dead zone uh lethal weapons two and three the Lost Boys, a bunch of hip, clever, fun, 80s schlock cinema Jeffrey Bohm wrote the scripts for. Inner Space. Inner Space, I have never seen, but I know a lot of people swear by it. As far as hipster 80s vampire movies, uh, it's not good, but Lost Boys is the best of the lot. Actually, that's not too true. Fright Night is the best of the lot, but Lost Boys is the best one that you've heard of. Lethal Weapon 2 is one of the most fun action sequels, I think. You know, better than any diehards or... Mm-hmm. Anyway, this guy this guy had a way with dialogue, dialogue, I think. I like the hard cut to Indiana Jones fighting the guys on the ship. We've got the 
man in the white tux with the red palm bloom mm-hmm. as we Ryan Johnson decided to to pull in uh Last Jedi. So white tuxedo, red plum bloom mm. is James Bond. It's Harrison Ford in Temple of Doom. It's the master code breaker mm-hmm. oh, okay. in Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi. Not Del Toro, but the guy that they want to hire. The guy that's yeah. walking around the casino. Yeah, I remember yeah. that now. And it's the guy who had paid fake Indiana Jones to get the cross of Coronado, and he's the guy on the boat. Right. In that white tux with the red plum bloom. Well, the thing I will say about it, that that is a... I just, I just, I'm just imagining all the movies that where it'd be like, it's that guy. His name is this. He's that. It's like Spielberg is really good at just doing things like let's just put him in an in a outfit and let's have him wear the same outfit 20 years later. So it's like it's that guy. Yeah, he's the bad guy. You don't actually need anything besides that, which seems really simple and really obvious. But so many filmmakers do so many useless calisthenics to set up things like that well i thought it was playing into as much as anything it was playing into we see indiana jones at the beginning of raiders Mm -hmm. and he is the guy who had found the cross of coronado and gave the the fedora to indiana jones right we see him in the opening scene of temple he's the guy who was out in the Mm. car in the white tux with the red palm bloom it's a guy on the boat Nice. So Indiana Jones just stole everything from everything. from these this guys. This one encounter. From this one encounter. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I like that. It rings completely true to my experience with fatherhood and with my dad and stuff. Just like the idea that the stuff that you intentionally take is not from your dad, but from some random guy. But you can't escape the stuff that... But you can't escape the fact that you become your dad no anyway. What, yeah. By the way... To see a really lame version of this, just watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where Shia LaBeouf will be dressed like Marlon Brando in The Wild Bunch, have a stupid comb for a stupid pompadour, and oh, yeah. be doing a bunch of stupid greaser stuff. But really, he's just, just like, like his dad. So we're going to blow up the guys on the boat. We're going to go to university. We're going to have our first direct Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of, oh, we're just doing the formula. Yep. thing where he's going to be at the university with the kids. We're going to tone down on young women throwing themselves at Indiana Jones because Harrison Ford's a little older and maybe we're, we as filmmakers are a little wiser. They're still into him, but it's not as clear that he's just sleeping with all of his students. Yay. And we're going to have Marcus show up and we're going to meet Walter Donovan. Mr. Donovan. That great yep villain yep jake do you have anything (laughs) i don't know that there's much to say about much of anything until we get to venice i mean it's a good setup it's the the setup that i complained about temple of doom lacking actually we pull out the rubbing and we get some grail lore stuff and we basically have the scene with walter donovan that we had with with marcus brody and Mm -hmm. raiders you know and we introduce some of the music and stuff it's an important setup scene that pays off for everybody down the road, but it's not a whole lot to say about it. No, there's not. I mean, it is important for my experience of this movie that I think I watched this movie first at the age when I didn't expect that Walter Donovan was going to be the bad guy. Like all those surprises that seem really obvious now actually played. Yeah, let's get to Venice because that's where exciting things happen. 
Exciting things start to happen in Venice. Yep, including the introduction of Dr. Elsa Snyder. How would you rate her as far, far as... Number one. She's your number one indie babe is... Yeah. Just because they're all annoying and terrible, might as well have one actually be terrible. Yeah. Is that the logic here? I, I think it basically is. She ends up in some ways being more sympathetic because she's a bad guy. Well, um, she's the... When, when, she, when, when she's the prettiest of the three. Yes, I agree. Two, they give her a cool accent. Mm-hmm. I mean, if a German accent's cool, but I mean, I think, I don't know. Three, you know, she gets to play that sort of smug role and just be the bad guy there in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end, actually, she's a pragmatist. She's just trying to get what she wants. Actually, her heart's with Indy, and, but she's, you know, going to do what it takes. And so she's, they give her a layer of complexity that the other girls don't have that make her makes her... It's a little more sympathetic. She has a layer of complexity. And then they kill her. And they kill her, which is good. Also- And they use that. They use killing her to give us a truly great moment. With yeah. I can almost reach it and all that. Indiana. Yep, yep, yep. No. <laughs> First that. time the whole movie. Yep. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful writing. Yeah, she's great. I mean, uh, you can't overestimate the importance of having a girl in a movie like this who actually wants to be there, which is something that neither Marion nor, <laughs> yeah, uh, like Elsa, even if she is the bad guy, at least she's cheerful and so not she, like- She wants, she's excited to be a part of the thing. Yeah, she she wants to be there. She's happy to be there. Both Marion and She's whatever. excited. She's going to chip in. She's going to help solve the problem. She's going to- Yeah, yeah. And she, 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 she's not just going to be a nag, which is basically what the other, it, it feels like maybe- George Lucas doesn't hate women quite as much, even though he's still casting the main woman as a Nazi here. <laughs> All I have to do is squeeze. <laughs> All I have to do is scream. <laughs> <laughs> Moments like that matter in terms of just sticking a moment like that in the second act mm-hmm. just after she's been revealed as as one of the villains. It's really smart. Yeah, and it takes like 30 seconds and it adds a lot of depth to everything that came before and everything that came after, which is why I wish they wouldn't cheapen her with, with the stupid joke of she slept with both women, which the screenwriters or the, 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 the filmmakers, or yeah, she slept with both men, I should say, which the filmmakers seem to get a big kick out of. A couple times. A yeah. couple times. And um, actually that was Sean Connery's idea. I read. Of course it was. Um, yeah, of course it was. He wasn't ready to be that humble. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm still Sean Connery and I still want to, if I don't get to sleep with her on screen, I want to have slept with her off screen. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I get it. I, I get why, given human nature, Sean Connery would do that. I also get why it's a story choice that sort of makes sense. But uh, it's another place where Spielberg and Lucas just seem vulgar to me. Like, Yep. They have their, their they have kind of a 13-year-old boy sense of what would be erotic or what would be exciting about a relationship with ladies. And there's just something kind of smug and giggling about it. Like, <laughs> what if you slept with the same woman that you did? You know, it's just kind of yeah, that. Yeah, Indy's got to be grossed out by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like nothing. It's the same discomfort that I feel when Spielberg's actually trying to shoot a romantic banter love scene between Kate Capshaw and Indiana Jones. and. Temple of Doom, it's like, this is somebody who's, for whatever reason, just not comfortable with this side of relationships and mm-hmm. doesn't really have a sure grasp of how to show it. Yep. Anyway, we like Dr. Schneider. We're pro Dr. Schneider fans. 
they do a nice job of sketching her in really quickly. They have that little banter about the the rose and everything. Mm-hmm. I never do. All that good stuff. And then we're at the library. X does mark the spot. Ha ha! That's an example I would say of how this movie is just a little less successful than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like that's a that's a payoff that's coming a little too soon after the setup. X never ever marks the spot. Yeah, and then like within twenty minutes, X marks the spot. You need to save that for the end if you're going to do that <laughs> at all. Also, the humor. Like I thought this was hilarious as a kid. I will admit, but man, is it! It is prequel. It the is, stamp. The stamp thing. Yeah. The stamp thing is just as corny as the hedgehog that people make fun of in Crystal Skull or some of Jar Jar. Like it's, <laughs> it gets grandfathered in because we saw it and we thought it was funny as like when we were babies. But I submit to you that if we saw that, <laughs> if they put that in a new Indiana Jones movie, we'd be like, this is the lamest thing. Like, I can't believe they thought that this cartoon, like old man looking at a stamp was funny and would work. You broke the reality fellas like i thought indiana jones lived in the you know, real world didn't break the reality is when they got on a raft and <laughs> yeah, well, jumped exactly. out of a plane exactly <laughs> okay we're going down into the catacombs which as roger ebert points out in his review venice is full of water it could not have catacombs like it would not if there's one city on earth that could not sustain catacombs. underground dry catacombs it would be the famously waterlogged city of Venice. Yeah, but we needed to get underground and be with some, some corpses vermin. and vermin. Yep. Yep. So uh, we need we needed skeleton jump scares and gross vermin because that's what every Indiana Jones film needs. Yep, we're leaning into the formula. I think rats are definitely the least creepy and spooky and interesting of the various vermin that Indiana Jones. Better than the bugs. You'll take the rats over the bugs? Uh, every day I take the rats over the bugs. The rats are gross. Yeah, I mean, they, I wouldn't... They don't creep me out the way that the... They still creep me out. It all creeps me out, but not the, the bugs. The bugs are the worst. Yeah, I mean, I think rats would rank high among things I wouldn't want to... Like, I'd be thoroughly creeped out if I ran into a big horde of rats like that in real life. Yeah. Maybe more than some of the other ones, but... The snakes? Well, actually, rats still might come in third. I mean, those those are we talking like centipedes and scorpions too. Like, yeah, okay, it's all bad. Yeah, it wouldn't be good. But rats cinematically are the least. Yeah, scary. The, yeah, I think they are. Then we have the the boat chase, which is fun as far as it goes. Uh, one nice thing about this movie that I really like is I, I think you pointed this out maybe on another podcast or maybe off air is. Um, John Williams doesn't actually use the Raiders march yeah. hardly at all. Yeah. He really doesn't lean on it. If anything, he he's intentionally leaning away from it. There's actually no full statement of that theme until Indiana Jones rides into the sunset, having saved the day with his dad and his two friends. Mm-hmm. There's, you just, you can count it. There's, there's hardly, you'll hear like little, you know, John Williams likes to use his light motifs and kind of weave them yep. in. You'll hear the, da, 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 you'll hear, hear it, but. There's actually no full statement of it in this entire movie um, mm-hmm. until the very, very end. Instead, you get a lot of new music and you get a lot of like the grail or you know, other things. But this was back in the day when John Williams would write, and he was just so prolific, he'd write a new theme for every section, you know? Like this, the reason I thought of it is this Venice boat chase has its own yeah. Venetian kind of ding, 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 ding kind of. Yeah, uh, like the basket chase. Yeah, exactly. But this is Venice, so it's we've got a Venice, I don't know what that sound is, like the zither or whatever instrument they're playing that yeah. sounds very Venice-y. 
going to have a boring, quick sex scene that was probably fast forwarded in my childhood, or at least I am always a little bit surprised at, at it being in there. Like I, I don't tend to remember it. She ransacked her own room. Yep. And we're going to get to the Scottish castle. We're going to meet Sean Connery. Yep. And you've come out of the gate as you're, you are Sean Connery as Indiana Jones's father fan. Yep. hundred percent. I've heard some people argue that he's too cute or that he's too, too cute, too Scottish too. Yeah. To this, to that. Whatever. Come on. I don't, I don't even know what to say. Uh, maybe I'm just so brainwashed mm-hmm. because it's the way it's always been like, but He's perfect. Well, I think Spielberg doesn't... Spielberg can be guilty of sentimentalizing things or over-sentimentalizing things, but I don't think he really does that with this character. You know, there's a little bit of a dorky, you know, Scrooge McDuck kind of a quality to him, especially with the umbrella and the birds and some of those... (laughs) Yeah, like Spielberg makes him kind of a figure of fun, but Sean Connery is basically a pretty serious actor. We know him as a serious... You know, for a bunch of roles. We know him as an action star, for goodness sake. Exactly. And so we're actually casting against type, and he's bringing a lot of innate gravitas and dignity to this character that could potentially be kind of silly. But then he also gets moments of real gravity. He gets to talk about the grail in a serious way. And yeah, he's got his absent-minded stuff too, but he's going to turn around and he's going to slap Harrison Ford in the face and say, that was for blasphemy. Yeah, I think that moment adds a lot to the character. Like, oh, this is a real... This is a dad. Dad, yeah. And it's not a dad who's going to, he may be absent-minded. He may not know how to give and had never gave himself emotionally to his son. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to not discipline him. Yeah. He's not going to let him get away with that. Right. Like, he's got lines. He's mm-hmm. got rules. He's got places that he's not letting that boy go. Yeah. It doesn't matter how old he is. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. It's pretty great. That's true to life and gives him some humanity and some sympathy and says, you know. Yeah, well, and it gives him some dimensionality like he's not just this figure that indiana jones has to figure out how to accommodate himself to he's not just a plot point he is his own man yep and he has his own perspective on everything just like any dad would Mm -hmm. right like you never talk to me i let you go explore do your own thing i never yeah that little scene that little conversation between them and the blimp is the perfect example of I think good screenwriting, like you're just saying a whole lot with, you know, the scene's probably like what a minute, two minutes. Yeah. Well, you want to talk? Let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that is such a that is such a dad move. <laughs> right it's a dad move. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? I'm here now. <laughs> Doesn't work like that, Dad. Right. Yeah. I can't. Well, think... well, well. What do you want from me then? <laughs> and then the fact that they both move. Then, you know, uh, Sean Connery says, then what are you complaining about? Let's get down to business. And then they're both excited to just be father <laughs> and, and start, son talking about geeking out about the grail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like they always had things that they could have. Anyway, I don't need to explain the relationship in this movie to people, but it's really great. Seeing Sean Connery again in this movie, I was reminded, you know, he's still alive, I guess, but he's been retired since stupid League of Extraordinary Gentlemen made him have distaste forever being in a movie again <laughs> man i grew up sean connery was such an iconic part of my childhood the untouchables yeah. hunt for red october i mean obviously the rock the rock yeah that was the other one the rock was one of my favorite movies growing up i mean sean connery was like the mentor father figure obi-wan figure first night 
Not so much first night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Finding Forrester was one that I liked. Uh, that came a little bit later, but Entrapment. I remember that movie, but not so much for Sean Connery. Yeah, he really has retired since League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, I know the story is that they offered him, I think, The Matrix, and he turned it down because he didn't understand it. And then they offered him Lord of the Rings, and he turned it down because he didn't understand it. And then they offered him League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and he said, well, I don't understand this either, but I guess I'll take it. And then he got burned on that one. And so he's like, I just really... I'm done. I don't get it anymore, and it doesn't get me, and this isn't fun, and I've got all the money. Saturday Saturday Night Live didn't do him any favors either around then. Oh, was that when Daryl Hammond started doing his thing on Celebrity yeah. Jeopardy? Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, you must have felt like a real, like he'd become a real joke somehow. Yeah, which I think John Connery seems like the kind of guy who's pretty serious. He might not take kindly to that sort of thing. I mean, John Connery, he's one of those guys, he just feels like the last generation of real action stars. You know, you have so many of these guys now. It's like Matt Damon, he can train, or Robert Downey Jr., you know, Chris Evans. They can train, they can build their bodies, they can learn to act like men of action. But Sean Connery was... They don't have that natural John Wayne-y kind of gravitas. Yeah, Sean Connery was in the Navy. He was a boxer. He was a day laborer. He was just a, a dude, yeah, you know, a bloke. Like before he, and then he kind of fell into acting. Well, you're not allowed to be that kind of a man. Yeah, exactly. In Hollywood the, anymore. Those those men, in some sense, barely exist. And if as far as they exist, they're miles away from Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. But Sean Connery just brings that kind of man of Sexiest action. Sexiest man of the century by People Magazine. I can see it. And fun fact: wore has worn a, a toupee since the early James Bond movies. By from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, he's already wearing a toupee. Never had. I mean, I know you thought his dreadlocks and uh, <laughs> <laughs> whatever the Rock were <laughs> his actual hair, but <laughs> uh, you could just tell. Like I always, I think of the moment where Henry Jones grabs the gun in the tank and just shoots it, and it blows up some Nazis. It's like you can just tell on some visceral level that Sean Connery, as a man, is comfortable with those kinds of things that. You know, no matter how much you build Matt Damon up, he never feels like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I like Jason, the Jason Bourne movies. I don't mean to pick on them, but a lot, of, so many of these modern guys don't, just don't have that innate, like, oh, they've done this a million times. You know, it's the difference between a real smoker in a movie and someone who's smoking just for the movie. There's something self-conscious about it. You couldn't even really put your finger on it, but someone who actually smokes has lit a billion cigarettes. And so they do it without thinking. Whereas somebody who doesn't smoke is posing and thinking about it and it's an impediment to them that they have to work with. And mm. Sean Connery, when he does action and when he does manly stuff, just feels like he's been there before, which is something that you can't really manufacture. Gotta have done it. Yep, exactly. And it brings a lot of, it's, it's why this character can be a little silly and yet still have a lot of innate authority and dignity. Here's another fun story about Sean Connery. What's that? I'm just scanning his uh, his wiki right now. Oh my goodness. If you just sort of like, yeah, he was in the Navy. He was a laborer. Uh, he was an artist model. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bodybuilder. He placed third in the 1950 Mr. Universe contest as a bodybuilder. He was offered a contract with Manchester United, which is like being... Uh, to offered a contract with the New York Yankees. Wow. Um, as a soccer player, he really was just like freak. Yeah. 
Well, it's 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 the character that Daniel Craig has had to play. That's who Sean Connery. You know, James Bond as a guy who's really a thug, but has been trained up to wear a suit and tie and pretend to be uh, a James Bond. Mm-hmm. That's who Daniel Craig. That's that's the character that Daniel Craig's been asked to play, and he does a good job. But that actually is the man that set the template for James Bond was like a big bruiser, a thug who learned how to wear a tuxedo for James Bond. Mm-hmm. But as Eva Green says about Daniel Craig's, Craig's character, Sean Connery wears tuxedos with disdain. Like he has a little bit of that, that real spirit to him. And I think those kinds, I don't, I don't know how to quantify it, but I think those kinds of things do inform a character like Henry Jones Jr. Or Henry Jones Sr., I should say. This guy just feels like he's been around the block, like he's had adventures, like he knows his way around things. His mom was a cleaning woman. His dad was a factory worker and a lorry driver. How old is he now? He's in his 80s, right? Probably late 80s. 90. He's 90 years old. There you go. 90 years young. Mr. Connery, we salute you. Just celebrated a birthday. There you go. Celebrated his 90th last week uh, from this recording. Well... If he wants to zoom in to be on the podcast sometime, he he's not. We we don't do Zoom for our podcast. He can't do it. What's the next scene that we want to jump to? They escape from the castle. Elsa and Donovan are both revealed to be bad guys at the exact same time. The little motorcycle chase. Indiana Jones jousts. He's like a knight. Hilarious. On a, on a crusade. Well, you know, in Raiders, we had the thing where he had to come out with the white horse. Yeah, that's I'll true. think of something, and so... Then he's got the white horse, and it's hilarious mm-hmm. and cool. Yeah, it's good so stuff. Now he's doesn't have a white horse. He's got a motorcycle, but he can joust. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go to Berlin. We're going to be part of whatever the German word is for that great book burning. And Hitler's going to sign our book. Yeah, great. Hitler's going to use the wrong hand. That's a famous bit of trivia from the movie. Hitler was, I forget which one it is, but Hitler was either left-handed and the movie has him right-handed or... I think he's left-handed in, in which real ca- life. In which case the movie has him sign it with his right hand. I'm going to look it up. We know you trust us to get information on Hitler 100% right. <laughs> that is the sound of sanity or the sanity at the movie's guarantee. No, Hitler was right-handed and for a time apparently... Wondered if left-handed people were inferior and needed to be discriminated against according to certain things on the internet. Apparently. I don't know. It's hard to tell. So I think that brings us to the blimp. Blimp's pretty fun. Blimp is fun. I, I will say again, and I saw this in a review. Somebody s- said this. this. is not original with me. But no ticket is another joke that if they put it in a, a new Indiana Jones movie, we might think it was really corny and lame. But w- we grew up with it. So we think it's funny. And just like little kids think Jar Jar is funny or think that that hedgehog at the beginning of Crystal Skull is cute. I don't know. Maybe there's things that we've grandfathered in. Just a thought. Or maybe it actually is funny. I don't know. Maybe there's a quantifiable difference between the corniness of punching a guy out and then a bunch of people grabbing for their tickets and the corniness of a CGI. Uh, there's just a way to do corny that is fun. And this movie does it well. And I don't I don't I just don't I don't fully buy that argument. I don't buy the things that I think are good, I'm just conditioned to think that they're good. And yeah, it is corny. It is silly, but I, I guess it's always. You know part what of else it. is silly? What's that? Jumping out of a plane on a raft, and then falling off a cliff, and landing face up, and then going over a waterfall, and whatever else. That's stupid. It's just dumb. Mm-hmm. I don't like that because I liked it as a kid. I don't know that. 
I liked it as a kid. I don't even know if I did or didn't. It doesn't matter because it's just bad. Right. I don't think this is bad. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think I, I think I buy that. As much as anything, it's about the fact that these things are, like you were saying about all the gags at the beginning, they're built into the narrative and they make sense. It's like, there's a big difference between stopping so that a random CGI hedgehog can uh, uh, right. run well, around. Well, see, part of what you want, part of the reason why this joke, uh, why No Tickets works is because you want Indiana Jones to dispatch the Navi. Navi. The Navi. Dispatch the, Navi the Nazi. <laughs> you want him to win and you want him to still be able to stay on the thing and have people continue to go. Like, you know, you, you don't want that the blimp to be interrupted and have to get into a new chase and find a new way mm-hmm. out of Berlin. And so part of why no ticket works is because not a, only does it punctuate, you know, and bring completion to, I just punched out a Nazi and he flew out the window. And not only does it bring comic relief, but it also solves the problem of, he just got in a great big fight with a guy in front of a whole bunch of people and now he can't stay here. Mm-hmm. So you want it to work. You want it to be funny. You want it to be okay. You want to see those tickets go up and then you want it to, you want a reason to move past it. Right. Well, I think that's, that's, that's for me as much of the key as anything is it subverts the long, boring part where they have to figure out how to sm- get themselves on this plane and get around the bad guys who are looking for them. Yeah. It's just the moment. It's one of my favorite moments in all of Marvel where Tony Stark has delivered the bomb and the Avengers and he's fallen to earth and he's looks like he's dying. And we we're going to get this long, boring, stupid scene where it's going to be emotional and Hulk yells. And then he, <laughs> yeah, you Hulk yells and kind of body slams him or something uh, shakes him. And then he's back alive. And we've just skipped five minutes of unnecessary drama of boring. Cause we all know that he's going to survive. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And this is the, this is exactly that. Like, so it's a relief to you to know that, because you feel that tension, I think, and maybe you know, maybe you've forgotten that you felt that tension because you've seen it so many times. But the first time, and you know, anytime you're seeing it fresh, you feel that tension of, well, how are we going to have this great big fight scene in the middle of all this stuff? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, now we've got to find the long, boring solution to getting out of. Actually, no, he can just pull off, pull out a quip that. To us plays it as a joke, but to everybody else plays as a, oh crap, we better get in line and let this guy be in charge here. I think that's true. If there's anything that's corny about the, both those things, scenes that I pointed out could be corny, eh, John Williams often overplays comedy. <laughs> the, the music will be like, wah, 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 wah. you know, like yeah. uh, something funny's happening. Everything but, right? <laughs> Which... We love John Williams because he's not afraid to just play to the moment. It makes sense given who he is and what he's hired to do that he'd be like, well, this is funny. So I should make, let's make the, have the orchestra make it even more funny. But that's just not really how humor works a lot of the times. (laughs) Gosh, I don't know how much more I really have to say about this movie. I mean, you got the tank chase. I mean, okay. So you got the airplane escape. That's fun. Whatever. Those birds. Gets the plane with those birds. The birds, it's a great moment. Yeah, those are all great moments, but there's nothing to really say about them. Junior, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They've hit us. They've hit us. (laughs) They got us. They got us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty great. It it, it did, oh, as a kid, it always bothered my sense of continuity that Indiana Jones suddenly felt some confidence with a plane, even though he felt no confidence with a plane in uh, Temple of Doom. 
Uh, Temple of Doom, Doom was a prequel. It was a long time ago. And that plane was out of gas. There's a lot of Yeah, and good the plane reasons. was out of gas, and Indy was never going to let himself get in that position again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess there you go. You've solved it. Yeah, it's a good scene. In in Raiders, he didn't fly. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. he was stuck with some dorks boa constrictor in his or python in his seat. Mm-hmm. That's true. About time he learned to fly on his own. Yep, it all makes sense. Probably in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, you can learn all about all of the ways he learned to fly. What do you think about the making? So Sola and Marcus both kind of exist as comic relief, especially Marcus goes from being the father figure. He's been replaced by Indy's actual father. And so suddenly he's, he's just got to just be a doofus. He's just a doofus comic. relief. It's pretty deft. It's a completely different character. Mm-hmm. And I don't care. Well, I think that guy that I forget he's, was, uh, he's great. Yeah. Denim Elliott. He, he just nails it so much so that you miss that guy when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark again. Yeah. You're like, why is he being so fatherly? He's good at both of them actually, but yeah. He's a really great clown in this movie. I mean, the moment under the tank where they do their goofy little handshake, mm-hmm. that's what I mean when I, this movie has so much elbow grease, so much, so many little details mm-hmm. and things that they do. It's like, who would have bothered today to write in a little song and dance between Sean Connery and yeah, yeah, yeah. Marcus Brody? Yeah, yeah, it's great. And, you know, with hand wavy things about it, it's just so silly and well, it's, awesome. And it's, such good character moments for both of them. I think filmmaking then lent itself. I mean, I, I like CGI. I, I'm actually going to talk about some things that I think would have been improved by more CGI in this movie. But when you're filming on green screens and you don't have all the actors in the same thing, I think it's harder to come up with moments of fun and moments of improvisation and moments of, I mean, can you imagine wrangling all those Avengers actors for the final battle? Like what's his face? Uh, Robert Downey Jr. has the clout and he knows it's the reason you hire him is to come play. So he's going to do little things and give you bits of business and he's going to kiss Tom Holland on the cheek and stuff like that, which there was a famous outtake that they released that they oh, should have man, used. It's so um, dumb that they, yep. But you can just imagine you're filming a movie like this. You've got a tank, you've got your actors, everybody's in costume, you've learned your lines. There's space to add a little dance or to come up with what the grace notes are because you're, you've already got it there. Whereas, you know, you're filming one side on a green screen and then you're filming another side here. And then that's the only way that you make a Lord of the Rings. So I'm not really complaining, but I do think it's something that like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings really lacks is those little grace notes. And it's because Mm -hmm. we're cobbling so much of this together out of special effects. I guess I can just say the, where I do want to defend CGI a little bit because people like to knock, knock CGI. CGI is great for just finagling those last couple things that you didn't quite get. And it's really evident in a movie. Some of the plane stuff doesn't really look like they're really in a plane. And then that stupid shot where the tank goes over the cliff with, with the dummy, with the dummy. Like that's the kind of stuff where it's nice to have computers. Like I wish this was how CGI was used. We're going to do it practical. We're going to build the models. We're going to do all that stuff. But then we have computers to, just fix those last little things that didn't quite work. Would you trade the poorly chosen cup for CGI? Like they're remaking it today and you've got the choice of it's all practical and you're stuck with tank, tank mm-hmm. dummy and whatever else. But I get Donovan. But you get Donovan, claymation, mm-hmm. practical effects. 100% I'd choose that. 
I, I'd stay practical. So why doesn't anybody do that anymore? It's just too much it's just time cost, cost, and cost. time prohibitive. I mean, they do. Um, people still build mozzles. It's not like everything's in horror movies and horror movies. And although even a lot of horror movies, like even just the blood and guts will be CGI now. And it's just like, guys, come on. The only reason kids like to watch these movies is to see how you do the, the viscera and stuff. Like that was kind of the fun of some of those movies back in the day, but not anymore. Donovan actually, interestingly, is an early use of CGI in that like this is, I think, a good way to use CGI. They're taking three or four different model shots and they're they're blending them together so that he can kind of turn into Christopher for Lloyd there for a second. And then he really does. Somebody pointed out he when he when his hair sprouts, when Donovan's hair sprouts, he really does look like Doc Brown for a second. Yeah. Boy. OK, so Chase, is there anything else we want to say about the tank chase? It's a pretty iconic scene. It's pretty great. But. It's no truck chase. Yeah, it's not the truck chase. I mean, I, that, that really is, it's one of the most unfortunate things about this movie is the tank chase. Because all all you can say about it is it's not the truck chase. Because it just is the truck chase over again. Yeah. Okay, we're going to, you know, cut to the pen is mightier than the sword. and I like all that stuff. I, I like a lot of it. I like Indy hanging from the tank with the, you know, whatever. I like the bullet bouncing around and shooting the guy and he falls and the tank swerves. This I like Indy riding up to it on the horse, you know, I like all, all that stuff, but it's just not, it's not as fun. Yeah. I think maybe. And you, you made, you made a vehicle chase scene that inevitably you have to compare to one of the great action set pieces of all time. Mm -hmm. And I wish we could have just not introduced that comparison. Yeah. I mean, you got to do something. You got to have a big third or second, end of second act action scene but yeah particularly with vehicles i mean temple of doom did adhere to that part of the formula with the minecart chase yeah but the minecart chase is completely different also. yeah it's just completely different it's a good it's a creative version of that yeah i think if you gave like the truck chase is great but it also has two huge moments of punctuation number one he's riding a white horse and he jumps from the horse to the truck number two he slides under the truck yeah and climbs back up if the chase if the tank chase had something equivalent like the big stunt that it was all building to that would add a lot mm-hmm. like it doesn't quite it doesn't quite have that payoff it just goes over the cliff he and the guy are beating the snot out of each other and then we're going to do a cute little thing where his friends think he's died there's only so much you can do with a tank, though. You can't go under it. There's only so many ways to go over it. Let's just smash people's heads into the thing and be reminiscent of the conveyor belt thing that preceded the minecart chase. See, also, for, for a movie that has basically been pretty fr- family-friendly and bloodless up to that point, we're suddenly going to get some of the old Raiders of the Lost Ark-style bullet hits and yeah. headshots and bodies being crushed and torn apart back for some doesn't feel out of place for the franchise but does feel a little out of place for this movie but hey it's a good action scene in and of itself not compared to anything else i do think when he's hanging off the side and all the dirt is pouring on him anytime we talk about indiana jones being like an everyman and the kind of guy that doesn't just dust off his that's i think of that like that never happens to james bond he's not going to get that much dirt on his tux this is what happens to an american anti-hero though yep absolutely as played by harrison ford you just get the dirt shoveled all over him. It's what, by the end of uh, Clone Wars, they gravitate to with Anakin and Ob- Obi-Wan in particular, mm-hmm. which was really smart of them. 
Yeah, in my it, opinion. I, I, they already have been gravitating that direction, especially for Obi-Wan and the stuff yeah. I've been watching. Like, this guy's a dork, and not everything works out for him. And, and he gets beat up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it, it makes it really sweet that he's not more jealous of Anakin, actually, mm-hmm. is what's something that they've, they've kind of low-key leaned into in the Clone Wars I've been watching. Like, yeah. here's a guy that's older and wiser than Anakin, but not half as good and not half as lucky, mm-hmm. which is a smart way to play Obi-Wan. And a smart way to play Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is to have this ending, which is terrific. Oh, man. It's so good. All three There's tests. Absolutely everything that would have saved Temple of Doom. Yeah. It can't just be about having a fist fight with the villain. That's no no good action movie, I think, is about that. It has to be about... Something bigger. It has to be about brains over brawn, or it has to be about... Perseverance. Perseverance. or You either have to score... A, a, a mental victory or a spiritual victory or an emotional victory. It can't just be like, I was stronger than you, so I knocked you off the bridge. Yep. It has to be like something about my character makes it so that finally comes down to it, I win and you lose. And we have three or four moments like that here. I mean, A, he's able to get through the tests that no one else can get through because he's smart, because he's humble, because he's willing to take a leap. Because he's has faith. faith. Because he's willing to take a risk for love of his dad. Yeah, basically it's because he loves his dad because he's, you know, he's not mercenary. He's doing this. I mean, I'm saying obvious things about the movie, but it's it's what gives the scene its power and Temple of Doom doesn't have that and it really sucks and stupid new one. You feel it and they make you feel it and they, you know, sew it on with an iron thread and it doesn't really matter and it really does in father-son type stories. But, you know, at every stage, Indy's about to turn back then he hears his dad suffering or calling or whatever. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I got to do this. I got to try. Yep. And then his victory over the cup, choosing the right cup is a nice act of humility. It's a nice conceit that Christ's cup would be the wood one. Yep. And they are sewing it on with an iron thread when Donovan dies. And then his little swastika pin is <laughs> sitting there in the rubble of his body. But I, I kind of love it. These are the kinds of movies where you can go for those grand, corny yeah. gestures. Like, yep. <laughs> he thought he'd be defined by finding the grail, but actually the only thing that's left to tell of him is his swastika pen, because that's all he deserves to be remembered by. Fall into the crevice. Two people are going to be tested. One of them's going to fail miserably. and be... I can almost reach it. No. Ilsa, honey, I can't hold on. You got to give me your other hand. I can almost reach it, Dad. <laughs> Indiana, let it go. It's great. It's wonderful. Really great. I mean, that's conceit. First time he says the says Indiana, except for Indiana was the dog's name. No, he says that later, though. They saved that until the very end. Oh, right. So yeah, it's the first time. I just think if we're in a writer's room and we're trying to break this story and we come up with the junior Indiana thing, that's when we break for lunch and go get a drink and congratulate ourselves on I coming know, up with a yeah. great idea. Like. Yeah. What a fantastic way to communicate a lot with a little. And it starts out as just an annoying joke. He's going to call him Junior the whole time. It just seems like it's there for just a bit of funny color to this relationship. Yep. And it's telling the dad just refuses to get it and to respect me as my own man Mm -hmm. kind of work. And then the, the, the one man who's dedicated his whole life to seeking the grail gets to say, let it go. Mm hmm. As he calls his son by his, his name. His chosen name. His yeah. chosen name. Which is so much more powerful because it gives you two and two and lets you make four than 
I love you, son. <laughs> Please don't do it. Please instead, you know, whatever little speech you could write isn't nearly as good. As it's just a simple little Indiana, let it go. Yeah. It's really great. And John Williams, John Williams has great uh, grail music, by the way. The grail music is awesome. awesome. And, and we can summarize a little bit of what the art of the score people say about this in contrast to the arc theme. Mm-hmm. There's been probably a couple of years since I've listened to them talk about it. But what I remember is they do a great little bit just explaining how Hebrew and Old Testament sounding mm-hmm. and the reasons just musically and just sort of like historically that the arc music evokes a more ancient but still distinctly Hebrew religiosity and mm-hmm. how the grail music is very much a very Christian, yeah, very, very medieval uh, hymnody, medieval kind of, yeah. yeah. And I don't remember all the reasons, but I don't, I don't remember all the reasons either, but they do a deep dive. They're really, uh, they're really impressed by it. Well, and just on a visceral emotional level, it, do, it works perfectly and it does, the one does sound Jewish and ancient. I don't know what it is. I mean, a musician could explain it to us. The other one does sound grand and medieval and kind of makes you think of King Arthur and Camelot. Yeah, maybe some of it's just the difference between minors and majors. Yeah. But because a lot of the grail. It's it's much more it, it major. It is major key. Mm-hmm. And certainly, certainly the arc is minor. But. but John Williams is so generous at this point in his. I mean, he's he's so gifted and. The Cross of Coronado has its own little Spanish theme of a similar type. Yeah. The, this is a great John Williams score. I think it's it's one of his best. The individual action scenes, you know, the tank has its own theme. The Venice-like chase has its own theme. And Indiana Jones and his dad have their own little emotional theme. It's really great. Feel bad for that night. You're going to have to stay there for another thousand years until somebody else comes along to challenge him. Huh. I assume that's, that's what, never been my interpretation. I I, I, I always assumed that it, it reset. It would it would reset. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's that's crazy. I've never assumed that at all. Do so you think it was just gonna collapse and the night was just like bye? Thanks for killing me. Finally. <laughs> yeah, it is what I thought. I I've always thought well the Grail's lost and crushed. The night is dead and it's all over. I mean maybe it's just that I'm I've read my. La Morte Arthur, and it's like the Grail's not crushed. Jake, the Grail may have left Britain, but it's coming back one day. You know, when when, <laughs> when King Arthur does the once and future king. Well, sure, maybe it falls that into that. Pin Dragon Indiana Jones, you know, brought it to an end. He was the return. Yeah, I of guess the so. King. I guess so. Jake, anything else to say about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? We haven't talked nearly as long as we did for Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of the Doom. I think it's because. It's a fun movie. It's a good movie. It's not really as interesting in terms of what it's trying to do. Where where does this place us in the the journey of the American hero, anti-hero? Okay, so our next stop on the superhero's journey is actually to come back to the Richard Donner Superman right. and into the Tim Burton Batman stuff. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, 10, 12 years before. Yeah. Or that begins 10 or 12 years before this uh, movie with Superman. But this is also the year that Batman is released, as you pointed out to me off mic. You know, I think that it's important to sort of see you have these heroes that are sort of just good guys, objective good guys, Mm -hmm. um, doing good guy things and having fun doing it in a straight ahead sort of way. And we as the audience are meant to have fun along with them. Yeah. 
Superman is that way too. Mm-hmm. Superman's a good, good guy who does good guy things. And the movie may be tongue in cheek. As is Indiana Jones. As is Indiana Jones. But you don't really question, this is a good guy who does good guy things for good guy reasons. He doesn't have a whole lot of internal conflict about it. Yeah, if you want to trace the trajectory, John Wayne movies are just about how great John Wayne is, generally speaking. I mean, you can point yeah. to the searchers and stuff, but they're sincere movies about a sincere hero. Indiana Jones and Superman are both tongue-in-cheek movies about a sincere hero. The hero himself is sincere and trying. The movies are a little bit ironic. Yeah, Superman's campy and Indiana Jones is ironic. They're both ironic They're, they're both winking ways. a little bit. They're both playing sideways to the material but a the little of, bit. But it's just a little bit. And at the end of the day, what they are presenting to you is Superman's actually pretty great. We may be cynical, but Superman isn't, and he's awesome. I mean, if anything, you could argue, I think that in both cases, what we're doing is we're winking a little bit because we have to. If we want to just give you John Wayne, which we do, then we have to do it with a wink because that's the only way you'll accept it. Yeah. Our goal is to give you a real hero. We still want to give you John Wayne. Yeah. The best way for us to do that is to exaggerate it a little bit, put Superman in a silly kind of context, and then we can believe that Superman could exist. If we tried to just really play it straight, you wouldn't accept that. That's your problem. We want to believe in John Wayne, but we don't believe in John Wayne. But we want movies about John Wayne's. And so we have to just kind of set them in this ironic encasing. When we hit Batman, it changes. Yeah. Because what we then have to deal with is, okay, you know, Batman's got its campy stuff. And so does uh, Raimi's Spider-Man, which we'll get to eventually, you know, when you get us there. We'll get to Superman and Batman when you get us there. But suddenly we're also trying to deal with, because we want that realism, we're trying to deal with the internal conflicts of these heroes. And so it's less about objective, external, good guy does good thing, bad guy does bad thing, good guy beats bad guy, and more about the burden of responsibility, the I'm twisted, I have these conflicting, I want vengeance, but I got to do the right thing. Do I have a code? Should I have a code? What's my code? How do I live up to my code? Yeah, it kind of feels like it's fun to be Indiana Jones. It doesn't feel like it's fun to be Batman. We might have fun as audience members, but... Bruce Wayne's not having any fun. Right. And insofar as it's fun to be Spider-Man, it also is terrible to be Spider-Man because you have these powers and that means you have this responsibility that you just can't bear. You just don't feel like you can bear it. You want to walk away from it. You want to have a normal life. You want to be with Mary Jane Watson. Mm. You want to do this. You want to do that. But you've got these cool powers and they're super fun, but it's also just a big weight around your neck. And so it's all about processing that. Every superhero movie since then, has to then reckon with uh, uh, not so much the hero's journey, but the hero's burden, mm-hmm. right? And so, at least I think that's what we're going to find. I and mean, we, We're going to find... Yeah, we're exploring our way forward. We're, yeah, and we'll, we'll find and tease out more nuance as we go, and maybe we'll develop an alternative theory or uh, flesh that out better as, as we get into it. But that's where we're at with Indiana Jones here as we come to the natural you know, what they said in the movie was definitive conclusion. Yeah, he rode off into the sunset. Yeah. It's it's, it's interesting. We'll, we'll develop our theory as we go along. But the 90s is an interesting time for all this stuff. You're going to have the rise of the prestige action picture, you know, like the Jerry Bruckheimer. We're going to hire a bunch of stars. We're going to get Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage, you know, two, two actors to play in our campy uh <laughs> and ed harris or, and, or even better 
we're going to get John Travolta and Nick Cage. Yeah. Well, <laughs> exactly. And and we're going to we're going to make like campy action movies for adults now, you know, with the rise of like Bruce Willis is going to have his heyday in the early 90s move th- things are going to get more violent. They're also going to get more My take on John Wayne is actually Bruce Willis killing the crap out of a bunch of people. I mean, or, Schwarzenegger and Stallone already were having their heyday in the 80s, and I suppose we should talk about them at some point. So we've already gotten plenty of, I'm going to have a giant machine gun and just <laughs> <laughs> kill random foreign people <laughs> with it. I don't want to do a whole review about Rambo or anything like that, but I suppose we will have to talk about that stuff. I, I think it'll be actually more natural to talk about it as we get into the 90s because that's when you have a lot of the fruit of i mean the first diehard hits in the late 80s and then you're gonna have like mm-hmm. all the diehard sequels all the lethal weapons lethal sequels weapons, yeah all that stuff is gonna actually more 90s cinema than anything else but you can see all that stuff becoming more uneasy with the idea of the hero well and then you get the matrix matrix yeah we have to talk about those i think lena wachowski as she likes to go by or he likes to go by at this point point just came out and said that the matrix was definitely a trans allegory and was always intended to be trans allegory from a cis perspective that's what the matrix is really about jake i don't know if you knew that had no idea until they retconned it yeah so well their trans creator says that that's what it's all about you're also going to get the rise of the roland emmerich goofy sci-fi post spielberg spectacle independence day godzilla things like that Mm mm-hmm you could argue that Will Smith, like, does he does he belong in our hero's journey? I mean, he definitely played a hero and everybody definitely liked him. He also tended to exist as part of an ensemble, even in big starring, splashy starring roles. Tommy Lee Jones. Men in Black or, Indian, or Independence Day, both of those movies. He sort of exists as the hero kind of on the, on the side of the movie. He's not, I guess yeah. he is just the hero of Men in Black. I'm overstating my case a little bit. Anyway, a whole lot more to talk about, but we're stuck talking about I mean, we have the privilege of talking about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for our Indeed, next Indeed, we do. Stop. And that's going to shoot us forward like 20 years or something. Yay. Yay. Oh, uh, Jake, I always forget to do this, but we do need to do our patron choice awards of awesomeness. So let's talk about how great Jeffrey is. Well, what can you say about Jeffrey? What can you say about him? One thing you can say is that he his last name's not Dahmer. Nope. He's like the opposite he's he's like on a, on a scale of Dahmer to 20 he's a 20 yeah he's nowhere close to <laughs> being jeffrey Dahmer. would we if, if jeffrey Dahmer wanted to give 10 bucks to become a member of the patron choice awards of awesomeness this is assuming jeffrey Dahmer was still with us and listened to podcasts and could support us from jail where i hope he'd still be locked up would we accept jeffrey Dahmer's money jake well my understanding is that Jeffrey Dahmer actually repented of it, everything and became a Christian and went to his grave regretting his whole life. So if it were fruit of real repentance, then sure. Which hopefully it would have, it would be evident by now. I don't know, both uh, Dahmer and Bundy it, repented <laughs> at the end of their lives and it's really hard to tell. It's, well, uh, it's who knows? Not a, it's not ours to tell actually. No, well, yeah, exactly. Right? But but there wasn't really time for much. In Bundy's case, it was like right before he got executed and he did this big thing with Dr. Dobson. I'm sure you can find it online where. Oh, I don't, I don't uh, know anything uh, about that. Dobson, Dobson interviews Bundy and Bundy talks about how pornography led him astray and 
a lot of people think it was just a really cynical ploy to capture the hearts of the focus on the family, Christian right, and get out of and get a stay of execution. Free. But some people think it was real repentance and the things that Bundy has to say about pornography feeding his lust and leading into greater and greater sin until he became a serial killer are frightening and true, I think. From what I remember, I was made to watch that <laughs> at some point. Like, ah. here's a lesson from Focus on the Family on <laughs> the evils of pornography. It's <laughs> an interview with Dr. Dobson and Ted, Ted Bundy. Bundy. I, I have also seen the interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer, and he actually seems more legit, maybe. He had, he had more time. He wasn't motivated to get out of execution because he was just in jail for life. Yeah. He was not executed. So... I'm so sure. Good job, Jeffrey. Yeah, good job, Jeffrey. <laughs> Thanks for being a patron choice board of advisors. I'd, I'd like to point out that nope. I, I leaned into the serial killer angle more than Jake was expecting, but I did not get us on the serial killer angle. So who do you blame for that? I don't know. <laughs> I should have known better. I should have anticipated that Nathan would lean into We would that. actually have a bunch of trivia. <laughs> Jake, I've got an opinion on that. <laughs> um, oh, anyway, man. Jeffrey, thanks for being a patron. Thanks for being a patron. And you you are really not at all like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, and if you want to not be compared to serial killers, you should go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies and yep. sign up today for our $10 level. Yep, I believe that is the Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness. Is and the $10 we, level? Yeah, yeah and uh, we, we basically choose one patron every episode and talk about how awesome they are. And so, Jeffrey, you're awesome. You're the opposite of Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> you're more like Jeffrey Chaucer. <laughs> What's a, who's a good Jeffrey? There's got to be like Chaucer's a, a good Jeffrey. Yeah, he counts. I mean, he basically helped define the English language. That's pretty good. Yeah, Jeffrey Wise. He's kind of a big, big deal. Yeah, the big Jeffrey. Well, maybe Jeffrey's just the best, though. Well, I mean, Jeff Goldblum. There's Jeffrey Goldblum. There's <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Jeffrey Lebowski. There's got to be a, a great Jeffrey. I'm looking. Is there a president or like a Jeff well, there's, Bezos? There's Jeffrey Abrams. J J. Abrams. Oh, yeah, he's not really a great Jeffrey. Jeff Bridges. He's a pretty okay. Most Jeffrey. famous people named Jeffrey. Here we go. Here's a list. Number one, Jeffrey Sachs. You like Sachs? Like Sachs and like the gold yeah. people. Yeah. Then Ja Rule. J.J. Abrams, Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeff Bridges, Jeffrey Amherst, Jeff Buckley, Jeffrey Archer, Jeff Lynn, Jeffrey I mean, Katzenberg. These people are fine. Uh, Katzenberg, not so much. Zach Wilde, Jeffrey Tambor, Joey mm. Ramone, DJ Jazzy Jeff. Boy, I'm, I'm looking here. Are there any great sports Jeffreys? Not presenting themselves to me off the top of my head. You know what this means? This means that patron Jeffrey... Is the is best actually Jeff. the greatest Jeffrey of all time. We've just done the research. We've we have looked and Jeff Teague is a basketball player. Jeff Hornacek, yeah. I mean honestly Jeff Foxworthy. Jeffrey Bezos. Jeff Fox Jeff Foxworthy is actually in the running for top ten Jeffreys, and that's just sad. I mean Jeffrey Combs is okay. Jeff Gordon. I do like Jeffrey Goldblum. Always happy to see Jeffrey Jeff Goldblum. Bagwell, Jeff Garcia. Green Jeff Tweedy. Oh Jeffrey Wright, he's pretty cool. Jeff Kent. The huh. uh, he played uh, this guy. What's his face and from oh, James yeah. Bond and stuff? I always like yeah. seeing him and things. He's good. I think we have the best Jeff. We have the best Jeff. So there you go. If you want to be like the best Jeff, then support patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies. If your name is Jeff Bezos, 
definitely sign up and support. I think you can afford more than $10 if you're... I think you can afford more than 10 If you're Jeff Bezos. All right, this show produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me. Until next time. Jake is never prepared for this, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I throw you to think him by every time. <laughs> every single time. Every single time. I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. That's a great line. I love that line. This movie has a lot of great lines. Thanks, Jeffrey Bohm, screenwriter. Yeah.